The line of communication is still open. Um, we have not received an offer, but um, they continue to talk. And, um, you know, we, uh, like I've said before, I really enjoy playing here um, and would like to be here. But, you know, that's kind of up to them. Uh, my goal is to have Jacob be here for, for the long haul. Uh, and we are going to be operating this spring with that uh, with that goal in mind. And you know, regardless of what happens by opening day, we're going to continue to have that have that mindset. You know, from from this chair, uh, I think that he's important to what our plan is and our execution of the win now and win in the future mantra. I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm frustrated. Um, I have a job to do, and that's to get ready to play baseball. And um, I try to block all that stuff out. Um, that's kind of for my agents and. Um, you know, that's what they're there for, um, to work these things out and to make it where I can just focus on getting ready for the season. No, there have not been offers made yet on either side. Uh, and yes, Jacob is 100% a part of our future now and, and hopefully for years to come. Uh, offers and contract negotiations can be complicated processes. It needs to have analysis done on the club side. It needs to have analysis done on the player side. We are still uh, still making, you know, going through our considerations on the club side, and once we have those done, then we'll obviously communicate some of that information to the player and his agent. But there have been discussions already about what we uh, what we'd like him to be a part of, and expressing our desire for him to be. The next steps we'll have to see where uh, where and when those come. Your your current agent now, Jeff Barry, was kind of outspoken, or, or at least in the statement that he made at the end of December about how players have to start looking out for themselves in this climate. I mean that does become something that you could control, whether it's worrying about how deep you're going in the games, how many pitches you throw, how many innings. Could it get to that point with you as you continue without a contract? Or? Um, you know, I think that's going to be a discussion that's going to have to be had with my agents. Um, uh, it's kind of, that's going to be, uh, I'm going to have to sit down with them and really see what they think is best for me moving forward. I don't anticipate any any concerns. I, I think one thing that we will be aware of on our side is we want to protect Jacob Degrom as much as Jacob Degrom and as much as his agents want to protect him because he he matters to us not just during the regular season but his impact is even more important for us in in October. So as far as managing workloads with or without an extension, we're going to make sure that the player's health is is considered. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the world champion. Here's the one-two pitch, check him out, Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, February the 18th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's doing well. We're going to be kicking off the spring training edition of the show. We put the hot stove and all the fun stuff we do during the offseason in the back burner. Away it goes until uh, 20, end of 2019 into 2020. And we'll kick off the uh, grapefruit action here with Tim Healy of Newsday, beat reporter for the Mets for Newsday. He'll join me as we get the early, very early returns from Port St. Lucie. And uh, this will be the first of weekly grapefruit roundups. We hope to have a lot of content flowing uh, from down in Port St. Lucie and hopefully get a lot of different voices 
and opinions coming as we uh, we set the stage for the 2019 New York Mets. So just in a little bit, Tim Healy will be joining me. I do want to start off with some comments on a couple of things, and I'll start off with uh, Jacob deGrom and what has been the story for the first week. And I'm going to start by telling everybody just relax because I could see already the fans getting on edge, and I could see this story kind of spiraling a little bit. And deGrom and the team... Uh, divide, to me, is a total fabrication right now. I don't see any reason why there's this divide. I think the Mets made the comments that they had to make. They're trying to go and do their due diligence about putting an offer together for a pitcher who's at a very high-risk age and a very high-risk time for pitchers, which could potentially be the average annual value, the richest pitcher contract, uh, that this team has ever given out in team history. It could go down as that. Uh, so it's a very risky thing, and they've had some issues, notably Johan Santana's deal that went bad. So you have to really think about how you're going to craft this deal and how you're going to meet the needs of Jacob deGrom, you're going to meet the needs of where he wants to be, and how you could give yourself enough protection in the event that the back end of such a deal goes badly. Now, DeGrom, to me, is doing what anybody would do. He's you know playing it a little coy. I know he threw out the, the one comment that has created a stir, which is about the, uh, the shutting down or the limiting of the innings, which I do not believe Jacob DeGrom had any, has any intention of doing that in a pennant race. Now, if Jacob DeGrom uh, you know, has some aches and pains and the team is out of the race, could I see maybe missing a start or two? I don't blame him on that. He does have a career to worry about, but... I don't see this as a uh, Matt Harvey 2015 scenario or a situation where he pops up in September and says, I don't have a contract, I'm shutting this down. For the media to create or do their best to try to create scenarios and, and even go and interview Luis Severino, asking him what his thoughts are, and then putting the kid in a bad spot, you know, a kid where English is his second language, where he criticizes the Grom and the $17 million deal. Now he's backtracking. I mean, it just goes to show you the insanity. It's a time where, you know, basically everybody's running around trying to get a story early in camp where there really isn't anything but, you know, maybe a little Mickey and Brody's positivity. Um, or, um, you know, those kind of stories like the Kyle Dowdy's, the Rule 5. You know, you're trying to get some kind of juice flowing. And unfortunately, negativity sells. So, Really don't get into this, don't buy into it, don't get all crazy. Uh, opening day, whether it's a deadline or not, doesn't mean he's going anywhere if they're not if they don't have him signed. Uh, the, the, the the situation DeGrom is in is actually not a great one if you think about it. A lot of the pitchers that are comparable in terms of free agency. Now DeGrom has had one year where a lot of these names I'm about to throw out there are really uh, the comparables. Because if you go to baseball reference and you look at who DeGrom compares to, he's more Kyle Hendricks at this point in terms of what they look at him as than he is Max Scherzer. Although last year was every bit of what Max Scherzer is. But you know Max Scherzer, David Price, Justin Verlander, Cole Hamels, uh, John Lester, guys who got long-term deals who were free agents around the 29, 30-year-old range. Which, by the way, DeGrom is not. He has two more years before he hits free agency. So it'll be more around 32, 33 when he hits free agency. Uh, those guys all got $30 million a year pretty much. Uh, you know, not not Cole Hamels, but the big guys like Scherzer and, and Price, they, they're the guys getting $30 million a, a year. I think DeGrom, now that the market has trended towards that, will get an average a- annual value of $30 million a year. The question is how many years? Will it be four years? Will it be five years? Will it be six years? Will it be... Team options? Will there be opt-outs? Those are the questions I can't answer. I can see comfortably if the DeGrom signed an extension going into the 2020 season, I could see five years, $150 million, something along those lines. I don't know if the Mets would go much north of that. Uh, Is that enough for DeGrom? Well, that's where he has to make a decision. Does he want to play out the final couple of years he has left here? Uh, Does he want to perform at potentially an elite level? What will the industry look at him at age of 32, even if he's had maybe not the same type of Cy Young season like he had in 2018, but pretty damn good elite top five pitcher in baseball seasons? He'll get a contract. Will he at that point get um, more than uh, 
you know, a four or five year deal? I don't think so. I mean, right now, unless things drastically change, uh, there's a lot of concern about signing pitchers, uh, you know, at the age of 32 to, you know, five, six, seven year deals. Uh, will he be more Jake Arrieta at that point, getting a three year deal? Uh, you know, the, he he as a totality of his career is more in the Jake Arrieta uh, uh, totality bucket than he is Max Scherzer. But right now, he's taking the next leap, the next step in his development. So it's hard to say. So there's a certain amount of risk here, and there's a risk for Degrom waiting it out, and there's risk for the Mets pulling the trigger too soon. So both sides are in their right to say what they want to say. I don't think the the comments which you heard as the intro coming in were all that contentious. I think they were more matter-of-fact, like, hey, this is where we're at. We'll see where things go. We'll do what we have to do, and we'll do what's best for the organization in the case of the Mets and, and for DeGrom for himself. So don't get caught up, caught up in the nonsense. Don't get crazy. Let the media run around with their like a chicken with their heads cut off trying to start trouble. I mean, geez, they're going to the Yankee camp to try to get Severino to talk about it. I mean, what have we gotten to here? It's absurd. But anyway, we've talked about that ad nauseum. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, I want to talk a little bit about Robinson Cano. He had uh, his introductory press conference uh, in front of the media on Sunday. And uh, there's going to be a little bit of pressure on Cano. And, and Mets fans typically don't do well with the kind of players that Cano is a star coming from a team that they didn't like or a big star with big expectations. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. They're going to go out and build a team that go out there and can, can go out there and compete. And I mean, you get a lot of good pieces and this team look really good. You know, just hopefully, you know, all of us, you know, praying that everyone else stay healthy. And like I always says, when, when you have a healthy team, especially this kind of team that we have, we can do it. Pretty good things in this game. At this point in your career, how do spring trainings change? Do you do things? Well, I feel like different? I'm 25, so you know. <laughs> so it doesn't change at all, then. Well, no, I mean, I don't. I don't change anything in spring training. Uh, uh, for me, everything, every spring training is a new one, and uh, you know, I, I want to go out and, and grind and and feel like I'm competing. For a job, I don't I don't take anything for granted. I just you know I'm a beat an everyday player. I just go out and do my best like everyone else and enjoy it and have fun. Well, I don't I don't wanna I don't I don't wanna say for my legacy, but I I always say this. I mean I grew up to the Yankee system. They teach you how to be a champion from minor leagues, be able to win a championship, be able to make it to the playoffs seven eight times. It's kind of like you wanna go there every year. And wasn't able to make it in Seattle. And I know it's not because we didn't have a team. It's just part of the game. But coming back here, I'm looking forward to be back in the playoffs. Just Robinson, uh, what is your understanding of how often they might ask you to play first base uh, throughout the season? And just how receptive are you, uh, you know, to... Well, I don't have no understanding about that, so I haven't thought about that yet. <laughs> they have not brought it up with you? No. Yet? Robbie, what do you tell Edwin about coming to New York and what's he going to mean for the Mets this year? Well, I mean, I, I tell Edwin how tough you guys are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, as a young kid, you know, I just tell him, you remember, you, it's, it's not the same thing. Like, that's what I was telling him before, that um, it's a different scenario when you come, especially through the system in Seattle. You don't get to deal with a lot of media. You don't get to deal with all those fans. They're going to go out and, you know, they go to the radio station and criticize yourself and if you don't do good. So I just tell them, just go out. Don't let the big city get into your head. Just go out, compete, you know, have fun. That's the biggest thing. Just go out and have fun. All right, we're back. You just heard from Robinson Cano and it was interesting because I saw some fans on Twitter really getting annoyed how Cano spoke about the Yankees and how he grew up in the Yankees organization and he was taught from day one about being a champion and it really brought to mind how hard it is for elite players who have carved out resumes somewhere else and come with high expectations to really get any kind of learning curve here or any kind of rope to hang themselves for lack of a better word 
You saw Mike Piazza. We recently talked about it, how Mike Piazza had a really hard time coming over here. Uh, fans almost ran him out of town before he had a chance to resign. Carlos Beltran, who had a rough 2005, uh, you know, really took him a better part of over a year, maybe a year and a half, till the fans really warmed up to him. And then he had the infamous Game 7 situation against the Cardinals, and I think things never really got better there. I mean, they tolerated him. It was always an arm's-length relationship, and that was always a shame. I think, uh, you know, Santana got off to actually a a pretty good start here, and then he had the no-hitter later on, so he was exempt from it. But by and large, uh, stars that come here, Bobby Bonilla, I mean, he made his own bad decisions, but you get a very, very, very short rope, and, and immediately... The fans are looking for reasons not to like you. And Cano is going to fall into that. Cano is older. Uh, the expectation is is that maybe his best days are behind them. That's at least in the back of the Mets fans' head, the paranoid Mets fans' head. The, uh, the Yankee resume and the fact that he won a championship with the Yankees and that if he retired tomorrow, he probably will be remembered more for the Yankees than anybody else. And I think that's going to bother Mets fans. So Cano gets off to... You know, a 175 start in April or is two for his first 25 or makes a big error at City Field earlier in the year or strikes out in the ninth inning with the bases loaded and one out, I could see the fans booing him and I could see the fans getting really agitated and I could see this spiraling out of control early. Now, will Cano care? I don't think he will, but he's a human being and nobody wants to get off to a bad start anywhere. Nobody likes to slump. And baseball's a long season, and veterans don't necessarily all jump out of the gate and hit 350 the first month of the season and then uh, level off to where they're supposed to be. Sometimes it takes a while. I've seen veterans take two, three months before they uh, they get accustomed to uh, their new surroundings. Look at John Carlos Stanton, uh, who may not yet be, <laughs> you know, after the playoffs and you know the big out he made in uh, in, in in the game four loss that the Yankees had to the Red Sox. Uh, in the ninth inning, he may still not be completely being embraced by uh, Yankees fans. Look how A-Rod went through what he went through. This is a tough town. Mets fans are very, very tough on uh, stars from other teams. And I think Cano getting off to a good start is going to be imperative. And I think after his comments yesterday, uh, you know, I could see, you know, look, Mets fans aren't all for this deal. I don't think anybody's going to dislike Edwin Diaz. I think Edwin Diaz will be great. And, you know, he's another story as he comes over from Seattle playing virtually in obscurity. Now he's on the the hot seat in New York and and closing games, and and we'll see how that goes. But he may actually have a little bit more rope there as a young player. Uh, I think Cano is the one in the deal that there may be some discontent, especially because Kelnick was highly rated as a prospect. Uh, Dunn was highly rated as a prospect. We tend to overrate prospects, and uh, the fans are going to say to themselves, we got Cano, and we gave up those guys. So I think it would be important for Cano to get off a good start. I don't think Cano cares, uh, but... It'd be good for all parties involved where Cano, I'm not saying he has to hit 500, but gets off to being Robinson Cano from day one and maybe gets a couple of big hits and, and wins a game early. I think then there'll, there'll be some more tolerance to the inevitable slumps that come along with uh, the long season. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Tim Healy of Newsday will join us. We'll get into DeGrom, Cano, and some of his early thoughts of Mets camp. We'll be back with more right after this. Experience is going to go a long way. I now understand from a manager's standpoint how people react to wins, how people react to losses, losing streaks, and to be better at handling that the next day. We we are here to win. That's the bottom line. We want to win a championship. I think one of the things that stands out to me in my career was – I got traded over to the Anaheim Angels in 2001, in the winter of 2001. And I came from Tampa Bay, who struggled. Um, the, the Angels weren't that great of a team. They were kind of a middle-of-the-road team in 2001. Um, and I arrived at spring training the first day, and Mike Sosha is standing up in front of the team talking about winning the World Series. And, you know, coming from Tampa Bay, I was kind of like, well, this is interesting. You know, we were just, you know, trying to get a hit or two over there in Tampa. They want to win the World Series here. 
And sure enough, we won the World Series in 2002. Everybody believed from day, day one. And that's what we believe here. You know, you, we shouldn't be here if we don't think we're, we, we're better than everybody else and we want to win. That's not the way to go about this thing. We want to come to the field every day energized that we are going to win everything, every game we possibly can. We're going to win every bullpen we throw. And we're going to be ultimate competitors. You know, I think that the group that we have in there, I'll take them over anybody. And I'm excited to go to war with them this year. All right, we're back. Joining me, Tim Healy, Mets beat writer for Newsday, uh, author of a book. Uh, I think we had him on around this time last year, Hometown Hardball. We're chatting a little bit. Mets uh, just about a week into spring training. Tim, welcome to the program. I think it's just about a year that uh, you're on the beat. And, um, you know, I guess I'll start out by this. Welcome back. It's been a while since we've talked to you. And uh, is there a different vibe with this club? I guess if you're not going to be positive week one of spring training, when the heck are you going to be? Right. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, that's a good point. I think this time of year, everybody can be positive. It's a time of endless optimism, as I wrote today for Newsday. Um, so whether it's a different vibe, probably not, because I think the Mets each of the past three, four or five years have felt about this way. Um, this team might be better than last year. Sure, that seems pretty easy to say, but only time will tell if uh, it's meaningfully better. Without a doubt. I mean, it's Mickey Callaway, and I know it's so early. There's been talk. I heard Todd Frazier earlier on MLB Network talk about how maybe uh, Mickey's with, you know, presenting himself with more conviction. Clearly, it was a tough first year for Mickey. I think he got a little bit uh, heat, maybe some of it unfair. Not everything was his fault last year. Maybe his mistakes were exemplified a little bit. You know, the team had a lot of issues. What are your thoughts about Mickey Calloway? I think... You're right. He definitely had some ups and downs, a lot of downs last year. The Mets admitted that. I think Mickey admitted that. And there's reason to believe that this will be better with regard to Mickey Callaway as a manager specifically. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned it a minute ago, but a year ago at this time, I was just getting started on the Mets beat. And managing the Mets is a lot harder than writing about them. But I think anybody who started a new job can relate because when you start, you're you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants a little bit. Even if you think you know what you're doing, one year later, the level of comprehension and detail that you're familiar with is just on another level. So Callaway, again, his first managing job going into his second year, I'm expecting much better things. Um, but you know, I, this was kind of my take last year, too. Ultimately, it falls on the players to play well, which for a lot of last season, they didn't. And I know that uh, Brody Van Wagenen has been trying to preach uh, a player's mindset here, trying to change the mindset. Uh, I know that that's uh, – look, he's an agent. He's trying to sell a little bit. Right. Uh, thoughts on Brody? I mean, look, I, being a salesman is not a bad thing. you got to manage the media, and the Mets have done a, a horrible job of that over many, many uh, regimes and – in many years, but uh, what are your thoughts? A little bit too much, a little too over the top, or, or something this organization needed? Well, you're right. He is a bit of a salesman in a sense, trying to sell the public, perhaps sell the Mets on how good the Mets can be. Uh, the bravado for me, in terms of Brody being a, a public face, obviously he's very good at handle, handling the media. He's a well-spoken guy. The confidence, you know, I can never knock a guy for confidence, but... <laughs> His assessment of the Mets as far as being, you know, the team to beat or come get us, that to me is outsized confidence. <laughs> you know, I don't think the Mets are by any means the outright favorite in the division. I think they will compete, sure, as long as they stay healthy. But, uh, you know, I, I don't have nearly the degree of confidence that Brody seems to. And as far as Brody's EGM, I think he did a reasonably good job of making the Mets better within the budget he was allowed to. And of course, if you're a Mets fan, you're, you're always going to be frustrated and disappointed that the Mets don't chase the biggest free agents out there. Here we are in mid-February and Harper and Machado are still unsigned and 
the Mets really never started to walk down either of those paths. Same goes for Dallas Keuchel, Patrick Corbin signed long ago, but Marwin Gonzalez, Craig, Craig Kimbrell, you know, any, you know, the top free agent at any given position, the Mets didn't really try. Um, I guess you could debate catcher a little bit, but again, to get back to the point, Brody within the means he was allowed to work. I think he did a perfectly fine job of, you know, making the teams better, making the Mets better, and really working in the margins a lot to try to build value there. Tim Healy of Newsday, Mets beat reporter at Tim B. Healy on Twitter. And uh, look, you know, I'm a Long Islander. Newsday, uh, don't forget about it. You know, an opportunity to get <laughs> yeah. some great Mets coverage out there. I'll give you – look, I could try to do a sales job here too like Brody, you know. Um, <laughs> DeGrom. Uh, so let's get to the meat and potatoes here. Here's my take on DeGrom. You know, sure, um, you have to keep an eye on this. And I saw that you tweeted out, uh, you know, how – the Red Sox go back and they look how maybe they botched the John Lester signing mm-hmm. uh, back in spring training. And this is a critical time. You don't want to tick off your player, but to a certain degree, I think we're all fans, media, you know, we're all trying to, we're, we're bored, right? There's no free agent signing. Absolutely. Spring training <laughs> just started. Let's try to see how we could stir the pot a little bit. Uh, I don't, even though DeGrom said some things about being shut down and, and the Mets are talking about, well, we haven't made him an offer and we're analyzing I don't think we're at a critical Tom Seaver 1977, you know, you know, acrimony going on here. I looked at some other contracts like Verlander um, and Scherzer and, and Price, and I think the guy's going to get $30 million a year. How many years? I don't know. And clearly it's in the Mets' favor to wait a little bit because if he hits free agency at 32, 33, that's not in uh, DeGrom's favor. Um, I, I don't know if it'll go that far. I also don't think if the Mets are in a pennant race that DeGrom will shut himself down over this. Uh, are we making a lot out of this just to kind of fill some space in the boring early or the uh, the long early days of spring training? Maybe not boring. It gets more boring in a couple of weeks. I think it is partly that. You know, people are looking for something to chew on and talk about. Uh, but really, in the, in the Mets world, DeGrom's long-term fate is is a question you know we, we know the short-term fate he's under contract for this year they have team control for 2020 but beyond that it is a pretty big question um you know you mentioned the 30 30 million dollar a year mark based on Scherzer and Verlander and sure DeGrom compares pretty well to those guys but if you look at the market now and obviously the free agent market is kind of a mess it's going under you know there are big changes to what guys are getting paid. Uh, Jake Arrieta, this time last year, got three years, $45 million a year. Dallas Keuchel, we'll see what he gets. Patrick Corbin did pretty well for himself, and DeGrom is more of a track record than Corbin. Um, but I, I'm not convinced uh, about the $30 million a year mark. And really, if I'm the Mets, I'm not in any particular hurry to sign DeGrom to a massive extension. Two years is a long time. Uh, last year, obviously a career historic year for DeGrom. Uh, it's going to be almost impossible for him to match that. So there's going to be some regression this year. And you mentioned the age thing. You're absolutely right. If DeGrom, you know, 32, 33, what is that market at that point going to look like? How attractive of an option is he going to be for teams? Um, I don't, I don't know which just proves my original point, I think, that two years is an awfully long time. And if I'm the Mets, I'm not in any particular hurry to throw, you know, $125, $150 million at him. Yeah, and look, even though there's a deadline for the start of the season, if the Mets put something together mid-year, call up his agent and say, hey, look, here's what we're thinking, and it's in the ballpark. I know they don't want to negotiate, but to some degree the fans get paranoid on this. Just because they may stop opening day, that doesn't mean he's gone or he's never going right. to listen. If, you know, and I think that's the part where everyone has this deadline. I don't really think this is anything above and beyond what's normal for any pitcher. Now, get, granted, the Lester situation is an interesting one because the Red Sox let him get to free agency, and then they came in late trying to fix it, and I guess the cat was out of the bag. Uh, well, you know, well, if he not, goes to free agency, it's, a, it's two years, like you said, a long time from now. Uh, it's a t- the, the landscape is completely different. Hard to predict that. Right. And to go back to the Lester thing, not all, 
it started really before Lester hit free agency. Going into his contract year, the uh, the Red Sox, excuse me, the Red Sox tried to extend Lester, but they made him a super low ball offer. <laughs> that just pissed Lester off. So by the time he got to free agency, you know, I don't think there was a lot of loyalty there necessarily. You know, obviously he cashed in deservedly so with the Cubs. Uh, I don't think the Mets and Brody in particular are so dumb as to risk lowballing Degrom in this case, uh, because that can really fracture what right now is a pretty good relationship. And it's a tough spot for Degrom. I mean, he's 30 now, but he's not a free agent. Lester was about 30 when he became one. Verlander, Cole Hamels, maybe Cole Hamels' contract with the the option is a better example. Like we said, Scherzer and Price. But I don't mm-hmm. see him getting a seven-year deal. It's an interesting age because Degrom's a bit of a late bloomer. Has had some injuries. Um, so not apples to apples, but this is the age where his agent can go in, and there those players, in my opinion, maybe their resume is a little longer, but they're pretty good comps at the time. Like he's as good in maybe in 2018, 2019 as maybe those guys were at any point in their career up to their free agent time. Sure, yeah. The the years is an interesting question. I would be shocked if Degrom gets seven years from the Mets never mind seven years as a potential free agent two years from now. Uh, I think it's easy to forget that he's already on his second UCL. He had Tommy John surgery as a brand new minor leaguer when the Mets drafted him. Uh, so again, there are reasons to for the Mets or for any team that would pursue theoretical Jacob DeGrom free agent two years from now. Uh, there are reasons to hedge your bets as good as DeGrom as great as DeGrom has been the last couple of years. I think the starting pitching, even with Vargas, and I know some people roll their eyes, Vargas is a fifth starter I could live with. I do think Gio Gonzalez is still out there. I wonder if, as as the weeks go on, would he be somebody similar to the Mets just signed Hechevera to potentially be a backup shortstop and then got him on a pretty good uh, deal, with a, you know, an invite to spring training. Could they Could they look in this bargain bin of free agents and, I still think uh, Gonzalez is a guy if you want to upgrade that rotation. And, and here's the thing. Even if you give him a one-year deal with an option or a two-year deal, you may have to replace Zach Wheeler next year, who's a free agent. You may be making that move for next year as much as you are right now. What are your thoughts on that? Gio Gonzalez is an appealing option for sure, but unless his market is so non-existent that he'll take a really inexpensive one-year contract, I don't think there's a fit with the Mets. You mentioned the Vargas thing. A lot of people are down on Vargas. I think I'm higher on a Vargas bounce back than a lot of people are. Now, he's obviously the fifth best pitcher in this rotation. I'm not expecting a great season from him, but I think he can be a perfectly serviceable number five. And if the Mets think that as well, and that seems to be the case, that they're banking on that, it's probably not worth signing Gio Gonzalez just to supplant Vargas and then have to pay both of them. You know, you know. I guess, let me put it another way. If the upgrade from Vargas to Gio Gonzalez isn't significant enough to make it worth paying both of them at the same time. That's an interesting point. I think that's the part with these free agents, with the analytics. I think a lot of teams are starting to say, you know, can I get something for $6 instead of 12 It makes a lot of sense. Right. Robin, you know, Robinson Cano uh, introduced the media, no stranger to him in New York, and uh, anyone who's covered like you, uh, you know, the sport for a while, uh, but he's new to Mets fans and he's, uh, you know, the enemy, so to speak. And I know that he talked about the Yankees yesterday and how they, you know, they grew up with a winning culture and he's happy to be back in New York. Uh, here's where it's important for him to get off to a, a good start because Mets fans are fickle. We've seen Piazza get booed. We saw Belton sure. get booed. Uh, here's what they're going to do. The guy starts out, well, you know, two for 30 uh, or, you know, grounds out or makes a big error or, or starts off rough. Uh, I could see a lot of booing. I could see the calls into talk radio. Uh, I could see, ah, this guy was a Yankee. He's 36. Get him out of here. Uh, Mets fans are good at running people out of town before they even have 50 at-bats under their belt. So uh, your thoughts on that? Because that, that to me is, uh, and I don't think Cano will care, but it doesn't make things uh, much easier for this team trying to get off to a good start. Right. Yeah, I think it, it will be important for the Mets overall to get off to a good start. And Cano in particular, to get off to a good start, you know, having being on a new team with a new fan base in his old city 
making the money he's making. He's no stranger to these sorts of expectations that are on him right now. He's really, frankly, the only superstar hitter, superstar level hitter on this team. You know, we'll see if Michael Conforto can become that or if Joanna Cespedes ever gets healthy and productive again. Uh, but for now, Robinson Cano is kind of the guy in the lineup. Um, you know, you mentioned Mets fans running people out of town. Yeah, I mean, people will react however they react if Cano starts off slowly. Um, but I think he's uh, self-assured enough to not sweat it too much. Um, and on, on my end, I would always advocate for patience. You know, uh, overreactions after a couple of weeks or even a couple months, uh, I, I, I try not to do that. So I would advise everybody to do the same. Great start or not great start. <laughs> I agree. Uh, Tim Healy, Newsday, joining me here. We're talking about the Mets uh, just a few days into spring training, trying to get a, you know, set the scene from uh, Port St. Lucie. Uh, this is always where, you know, when I start these uh, spring interviews off, I go, oh, you know, what kind of positional battles are you looking for? What kind of under the radar type of guys you're looking for? But I'm looking at what potentially could be the Mets roster. And assuming Peter Alonso makes it, I'm looking at potential 25 man roster. The starting mm-hmm. rotation is pretty much set. You've got Diaz, Familia, Lugo, Wilson, and Gazelman in the bullpen. Avion will probably make it. So you have a, if you go with a couple of relievers, you know the potential then is a guy like Echeverria won't make it. Well, you'll have to kick someone out of the outfield, uh, you know, a Broxton or a Lagaris or something like that. Um, there's really not a lot of space here for some of these guys. So the TJ Rivera's, the Rajay Davis, the Gregor Blancos, the Tyler Bachelors. Uh, you know, I don't know how many spots are really up for grabs realistically for the opening day roster, and it makes you wonder. I know these guys have offense. You know, Devin Mazarosco, Devin Mazarosco comes to play. Uh, you know, there might be a, a pretty good Syracuse team that uh, if these guys want to play down there, yeah. uh, that the Mets might be able to pull from. Uh, there's not that much here if you really start to boil it down. At least I feel that way. Yeah, no, you're you're pretty much right. The way I see it is. There are two or three spots in the bullpen available. Um, we'll see if Luis Avalon gets one of those. Uh, first base, I, I think a lot of people have Peter Alonso penciled in, but that is a competition, and we'll see what the Mets want to do there, especially with regard to Alonso and the whole service time game, um, which is, you know, unfortunately a, a part of the thinking. And that leaves one or two bench spots depending on how many pitchers they want to carry versus bench players. Uh, but one or two bench spots to be up for grabs. And whether the Mets value a guy like Echevarria, who can play shortstop in second and third, or a guy like T.J. Rivera, who can do second, first, and third, or J.D. Davis, who can do all four corner spots, you know, it, it depends on what the Mets want there. And you're right. A lot of these minor league veterans, Blanco, Davis, Devin Mazzarocco, Echevarria. Uh, it's possible that none of those guys, even likely that none of those guys make the team. And then it'll be up to the Mets to, you know, throw them a little money, kind of talk them into their opportunity in the organization to convince them to go to AAA Syracuse, at least to start the year. Um, guys like Davis, Rivera, a bunch of those relievers competing for spots, they have options and, whether or not they make the opening day roster um, is a little bit overrated in my opinion, because for a lot of the season, they'll be, you know, bouncing between Syracuse and New York. They're Luis Guillorme in that um, batch as well, as far as infielders trying to win it, uh, you know, those one or two spots on the bench. But no, uh, you're, you you're right. It's better about that group, much better about that right. group than sure. prior groups. A- absolutely. Kyle Dowdy, you wrote about him. He seems to be the early uh, favorite for the sleeper of camp. Uh, Rule five pick. He has to make the, you know he has to make the team to stay on the roster. I doubt they uh, they would keep him or get to sneak him through uh, at this point. Uh, he may be the difference between some of those names uh, and how many guys in the bullpen they go. Uh, you had a Definitely. piece earlier about Dowdy. Uh, you know Callaway spoke highly of him. What who what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I, it's hard to say because I haven't seen him pitch yet. <laughs> uh, so next week, once he starts getting into a games, I should have uh, more of a sense. But you're right. I did write about him, and Mickey Calloway was really talking him up. People can read it, uh, you know, newsday.com slash Mets to get all of Calloway's comments on Kyle Dowdy. But you're right. 
Kyle Dowdy does figure into the bullpen conversation. He's mostly a starter in the minors, so it'll be interesting to see how he takes to what will almost certainly be a relief role, you know, barring injury to a starter. Um, but, you know, when we talk about those two or three bullpen spots up for grabs, Kyle Dowdy, at least to start spring training, I think has an inside track on those because the Mets like him for a reason, and he has to stay on the roster as a Rule 5 pick in order to stay in the organization. Um, so you're right. Callaway, you know, talking up the curveball, the slider, solid changeup. He said that Dowdy last year's changes that he made with the Tigers and Indians got his fastball up to 96-97. So even though Dowdy's had really no success in the upper minors, uh, the Mets think there's something there. So it'll be interesting to see if Dave Island and Mickey Callaway can kind of squeeze that out of him this spring. Uh, be remiss if I didn't bring up your book, Hometown Hardball. I know we brought it up last year, but also what's interesting is that the Mets have a new minor league affiliate. Uh, I've never been to Syracuse and visited that ballpark. Uh, have you been up there, and do you have anything for the fans who may want to make a, a pilgrimage up north to see the new AAA team that finally is within the same uh, time zone for the first time? Yeah. <laughs> well, since, since when Norfolk was it? No, no, Buffalo. They had Buffalo for a few years. So, right, so right, right. For the first time in about eight years. Well, you're right. I think the Syracuse affiliation for the Mets is going to be uh, very productive. Obviously, in recent years, the Las Vegas distance thing really um, left the Mets in a bind sometimes, and a lot of that was uh, uh, self-inflicted, I guess, you know, self-inflicted from the standpoint of the Mets waited too long to make roster decisions and didn't have a guy on standby. Um, But, yeah, Syracuse, uh, nice ballpark. Probably don't want to go in April or maybe even May, but once the you know once the nice weather actually hits, um, you know I, I'm looking forward to going this season, making a trip up there. And it hasn't happened yet, but the Mets and the city of Syracuse are putting a lot of money into that facility. So it's a little old at this point, but a year or two down the line. It should be you know one of the nicer ones in the league. So what do you got coming up? Obviously, you're going to be spending the next. Oh, four or five weeks in uh, Florida, enjoying the warm weather compared to New York. But uh, what do you got coming up? Anything that uh, they could check you out at Newsday.com or obviously on Twitter at Tim B. Healy that uh, would be interesting over the next few days? Well, over the course of the next few, you know, I think five weeks until these guys leave Port St. Lucie. And Newsday will be here every day, multiple stories a day, sometimes multiple writers. Um, So we'll have it covered beginning to end. And as far as the next few days go, I've got a couple stories coming, one on Jason Vargas uh, and him, his thoughts on what went wrong last season, why he thinks this season will be better. And then I had a good talk today, or yesterday rather, with Jared Banner, who the new executive director of player development on what the Mets are changing on the farm system to have better homegrown players. So that was a good talk, and I I look forward to writing that story. Listen, you've been generous with your time. Let's do it again. Let's uh... Uh, catch up appreciate it be well and uh, we'll be looking out for uh, more content over at newsday my friend absolutely thank you very much that's tim healy at tim b healy on twitter great stuff appreciate him coming on we're going to take a quick break wrap up with some final thoughts right after this and ronnie and i have a the same four just in a different order uh so ron you go max scherzer number one you agree Corey kluber number two i do um i think what i'm measuring uh, maybe because i used to play so the emotion and bias comes in (laughs) is guys that are out there 32 33 times uh really matter to me see i'm going sale and that's with the rate stats and just just ahead of jacob Degrom. Verlander, I think I slighted Verlander by putting him at number three. I like to change that now, but I can. And Scherzer for me, four. If you want to tell me, now oh, come on, he's number one, I'll buy that. I can't. I won't do it for five through ten, but that top four, I think, are almost interchangeable. You know what's interesting for me is that I was wrestling with, does Kershaw belong in the top ten list? Mm. And I end up with him at number five ahead of uh, Justin Verlander. Might have been a mistake, but again, I feel like he's pitched less than 100% his last three years because of the back injury. 
if he returns to physical health, I think he'll return to statistical form. Uh, yeah, you're the high man on Kershaw. I am. You are. And, I, and we don't know our, each other's lists. The sabermetric panel, because I had Kershaw in at number 10, and I thought, these guys will have Kershaw in there. I'm, I'm not just throwing him a bone here, but that he was out. This is another out. year I will not be allowed on the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, no, not, <laughs> not for you. All right. Uh, Carlos Carrasco, you, you have pretty high up there, too, uh, coming in at number seven. So there you go. Well, uh, you know, what I wrestled with is, is they have so many good pitchers in Cleveland. Clevenger had a nice year, too. Mm -hmm. We talked about Bauer. Um, earlier, but Carrasco has done it now over the last four seasons incredibly consistently. Right, you have Verlander way too low, though. If you've, you've got Verlander down at number six, really? You'd have, you would take over the next six months Kershaw over Verlander? Um, I, I, I don't know. That was, that was a hard one for me. I, I don't know. I think that Kershaw at his best, I think, is still a notch above uh, Justin in my estimation. Um, if I were looking at these pitchers, um, and when you and I talked about it before, even though they might be down on the list, who would you pick in the postseason to make a one start? Uh, Verlander. <laughs> See, so <laughs> it would be mine, yes, over everybody. And Jacob yes. DeGrom's my guy, so okay. I saw him pitch a game five in Los mm -hmm. Angeles and win. Uh, by the way, I, I couldn't find room for Severino here. When I go the end of my list, Bauer, Cole, Nola, Kershaw even, maybe that's a wash, but I just there, there, there's too much erratic performance from Severino. There me. is some, but 25 years old, he is going to put two halves together. All right, we're back. Final thoughts here, and you just heard a segment from uh, MLB Network that um, is called the Shredder, and it does the top ten in each position, and they do that throughout the offseason. And you had starting pitchers, and although Jacob Degrom was on that list, there was a notable exep exception, and that was Noah Syndergaard. And a lot has happened since uh, Noah had uh, the postseason success came out of the bullpen against the Dodgers in 2015 in that big game five, uh, pitched well against the Cubs, uh, had that only game that the Mets won in the World Series against the Royals and and set the tone with, with the Mets down 2-0, throwing basically behind the guy's head. It was Alcides Escobar to intimidate. And, uh, and then he had the big 2016. He pitched great in the wild card playing game, although the Mets lost. Um, he wasn't able to go as long as Madison Bumgarner. Uh, he was just slightly less good or less great than Bumgarner. And then he's had injuries. And then he's had the lat. He had last year where he missed a good chunk of time despite winning 13 games. And he was much more hittable last year, Syndergaard. And the injuries and uh, and some of the effectiveness, the slight drop in effectiveness, has thrown him out of the top 10. And you know he enjoys the Thor moniker. And, and I've been a little bit critical where I feel like he, you know, he spends a little bit too much time getting caught up in the cartoons and Mr. Met and this persona. And, and I'm not saying he's not working. And as he has a right to have fun, and it's cool, and the fans like it. They love the bobbleheads. But to me, I like professionals that are focused and serious and grind it out and, and execute and perform without the fanfare, like a Jacob deGrom. And to a certain degree, what Zach Wheeler did last year, was very admirable, a guy that I had a lot of questions about coming into the season, coming out of spring training. I told you a billion times I never was a big Wheeler fan, and he's starting to, to grow on me. I still have concerns about his long-term health, but and let's see him go around the league again. You know, He did a half a season. Let's see how great he is. But, but Syndergaard is not in that top ten, and I wonder, and he's a guy that has rabbit ears. He's a guy that he knows. He knows what people are saying. He knows that you know some of the uh, the shine is off the star and the, the bloom is off the rose. And he's probably going to look at that list, and you see a guy like Luis Severino. And, and truthfully, I think DeGrom is way—excuse me, uh, Syndergaard's way better than Severino. I think Severino's somewhat overrated. But uh, he had a better year last year, and he's been in the postseason, and he plays for the Yankees. So what do you think is going to happen? So I wonder if Syndergaard can use some of this as maybe a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, and he could go out there and have— the kind of year that he hasn't had since, since 2016, and maybe a better year than he had since 2016. And what makes you laugh is that DeGrom struggled to get to 10 wins last year, and he struggled to get above 500 for so, you know, for so many weeks, and he pitched brilliantly. And Syndergaard, I'm not saying he pitched badly. He pitched at some really good stretches, but he was hittable, and he won 13 games and missed time, and it almost seemed effortless. So... It goes to show you kind of 
how unfair sometimes the game of baseball is. But I wonder if Syndergaard could approach this season with a little chip on his shoulder, get back to the basics of being great, being the pitcher that in 2016 was the ace of the Mets staff and was virtually unhittable on any given day. And that became DeGrom last year, and it was not Syndergaard. And if he can recoup what he had in 2016, and inevitably you think DeGrom is going to be slightly below what he was last year uh, in a best-case scenario. Man, what a one-two that is. If Wheeler could be anything, maybe not the Wheeler of the second half, but a good hybrid uh, of you know really good uh, a pitcher versus the elite pitcher he was. Matt's coming to his own, and then Vargas giving you some solid outings. I mean, that's a really good rotation, a scary rotation. And I'm sorry, I don't care if Bryce Harper signs the Phillies, what the Braves have done, how good the Nats are. You have that kind of starting pitching every night. You're in every game. You have an elite closer. You're going to be winning a lot of ball games, and you're going to be a team that nobody wants to play. I don't care what uh, the media says. I don't care what the projection says. I think you're going to be a team that not a lot of teams are going to want to see come to town. And uh, when you're in close games, you're going to win more of those than you lose. So a little way to end it off was on that note. And, and really, I'm looking to see Noah Syndergaard. I think this is a big year for him. He probably saw that Severino got the extension. He may want an extension. Uh, I'm not sure how if he wants to sign, sign away some more of his arbitration years. But he's paying attention. And a big season this year, coming back to form, gets him back on those lists, gets him back into the spotlight, gets him talked about again. You know he likes that. That's something that he definitely wants, and and I'm looking to see how this, from the jump, from the start of spring training, how Syndergaard reacts to all this stuff and how he performs, and and what version of Noah Syndergaard will we be will be we will we be seeing in 2019? Hey, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Tim Healy at Newsday. Check him out on Twitter at Tim B Healy. Check him out at Newsday.com. And if you want, buy the paper. Newsday's still a pretty cool paper. Uh, of course, I want to thank the good folks over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with more grapefruit roundups, the spring training edition of the Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody. 